Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 351, Interview with Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast. As many of you know, I've been at this for a while, and some of you have written to me and said, Ray, there's a good chance I'm going to be dead before you're finished, which is true enough. Sorry about that. So I've brought on today a ringer, if you will, someone who can help me cover the more important aspects of the Pacific War. That way, in case I do buy the farm before I get to August of 1945, you listeners and myself will get to hear something of the Pacific Theater. Scott Rank's History Unplugged podcast has more than 400 episodes and 10 million downloads, and he's talked about all kinds of history, including World War II. Mr. Rank is also the author of 12 books, and he's been an academic, a public speaker, and a journalist. Mr. Rank, thank you very much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of your show. I've been listening for a while now. Uh, Am I jealous of your numbers? Yeah, but who wouldn't be? (laughs) Still, I'm excited to have you on the show, so let's jump into this. Um, As you've covered the Pacific Theater with numerous episodes and various experts on your show, I was hoping we could discuss some of the more impactful moments of the war. So let's start at the very beginning. Japan creates the East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, which, as we know, is going to be one thing on paper and another thing in reality uh, in the various countries of Southeast Asia. Um, Could you tell us a bit about that, how it got started um, versus the reality on the ground? Yeah, when I was uh, digging into the history of World War II, I did a series with a co-host named James Early. He has a show called Key Battles of American History, which is a fantastic podcast. I wholeheartedly recommend it. I'll check it out. And um, something that uh, really stuck out to me is that um, it seems as though when we look at Japan from the vantage point of today, um, historians seem to treat it a little bit more tenderly than they would say something like Nazi Germany. Now, nobody today has any reservations whatsoever condemning Nazi Germany at all, nor should they. It was right. perhaps the most cruel, inhumane government, arguably, that ever existed. I mean, you know, you could make a case for others, but it's definitely in the top of the pecking order. Japan, though, I think people have more trepidation um, for condemning the overtly fascist tendencies of Imperial Japan in World War II. Um, In the United States, there could be multiple reasons. Perhaps we feel guilt over the internment of Japanese Americans. Perhaps we realize that in the propaganda of the United States, there were overtly racial tones that we use to condemn Japan. 
and that makes us a bit uncomfortable. But really looking at Japan at the time period, um, it had incredible cross elements with Nazi Germany. And I think you can safely condemn imperial fascist Japan without it you know, having ugly racial tones the same way that we can condemn Nazi Germany without sensing that there's something inherently flawed with the German people. And Mm -hmm. looking at how Japan changed so dramatically and in a sense woke up from a nightmare after World War II, I think it's fairly easy to separate the two. Um, So, I mean, the the greater um, Asian co-prosperity view, the vision of Japan, the way it was presented by people like uh, Matsuoka Yosuke, who was the foreign minister, made it sound a bit like um, the British Empire. We are a great naval empire that will set up colonies, but work for the betterment of the world. Um, so y- using the language of 19th century imperialism. And this is how Japan presented itself to um, other Asian states that were occupied by Europeans, that we are liberators. Um, that, you know, why not be... Um, in a sense, why not the, why not have your occupying power be a fellow Asian state rather than a foreign state? Uh, so this is how they were initially received. Um, but since then, there have been um, documents that have appeared that show more of the, the true goals and aims of the co-prosperity sphere. Right. Uh, there's a document called An Investigation of Global Policy with the Yamato Race as Nucleus, uh, this is a document completed by the Ministry of Health and Welfare that was intended by high-level bureaucrats in Imperial Japan. So one of the things that suggested is that the Japanese intention of the sphere is to dominate other races. Um, and it sounds a lot like Nazi eugenics, that uh, it called for um, an increase in birth rate of the Japanese people, a target of a population of 100 million and five children per family for the Japanese race to... Uh, outbreed and dominate different islands uh, where they exist. Uh, it's sort of the goal is that by uh, conquering other nations, this is a stepping stone to world leadership. That quote unquote the Yamato race should re- you know be in their proper place with world domination. Wow. Um, and one of the largest goals is to ensure that uh, Japanese immigrants are in control of the agricultural business wherever they migrated and have control over the food supply and other things. So, uh, um, it, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, the language it's, I mean, it really smacks of, um, similar to like Nazi eugenics and, um, similar to North Korea in many ways today. So mm-hmm. the language of the, um, the, the Kim Jong family is similar. So getting more and more into the research, it really, um, I think, kind of like the received wisdom of how we understand World War II in the Pacific theater, the trepidation of kind of condemning uh, Imperial Japan, again, I mean, might have to do with um, the United States less than stellar um, reputation with how they dealt with their own citizens during World War II. But um, understanding the full scope of how Japan wanted to prosecute the war gave me a different perspective on it. Yes, I agree with the idea that we should be able to honestly discuss the facts of World War II. Yes, it was horrid, but it happened. And even though there's an element in today's society of um, oversensitivity, oh, I'm offended by that, therefore you can't discuss it, um, we cannot allow the events of World War II to be whitewashed 
uh, especially the cruelty, because that's how we learn. So in that vein, I think it might be worth adding on the idea, the concept that Japan did have its doors kicked open by us in 1853, and they were forced to engage with us. We taught them many of our ways, and besides the technology, we also taught them of gathering colonies under their flag that it was okay for stronger nations to dominate their weaker neighbors. Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, the end of the colonial era really comes after World War II. But before then, I mean, Japan would rightly think, well, Europe is doing it. Europe is getting extraordinarily wealthy by extracting resources from colonies. I mean, why can't we do it? And the rise of Japan I mean, is just fascinating. Um, yes. And at the high water mark of European colonialism in the late 19th, early 20th century, the European powers um, or Western powers, if you throw in uh, the United States, mm -hmm. control something like 80 or 90 percent of the globe. And for Japan to open up its borders in the 1850s, to begin trading, mm -hmm. to defeat Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, it's, um, it's startling. It shocks European nations that, yes, a non-European, non-Christian power can achieve the same success, the same technological and intellectual success as we can. Uh, and there are a lot of non-European powers that are looking directly at Japan wondering, okay, how do we do this? How do we achieve the same success they did without having to give up our values? And my research area was the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. And Ottoman intellectuals are very closely looking at Japan wondering, okay, how do we do the same thing they did? I mean, they are completely upending the conventional wisdom of what it means to be a successful nation in the modern age. And if I can add on to that, someone wrote, in 1915, Japan was copying the West. In 1929, they were still copying the West, but there was a rising element of Japanese culture mixed in there. So if you take a rise in Japanese nationalism, a rise in technology that they're getting from the West, they could potentially be a powerful empire. And that's exactly what they're going to choose to do because, again, they've been watching the West. And the face of it is going to be that prosperity sphere that we were talking about. But really, it's a story of exploitation. In my research, and I've only done the opening battles of the Pacific, but there were numerous instances of locals saying, oh, good, the Japanese are here. They're going to drive out the Dutch. They're going to drive out the Americans, the British, whoever. Um, but that tune is going to change very quickly when the Japanese troops are on the ground and they're in control. Absolutely. And you see this with occupied islands on Guam, on other places too, where very soon, I mean, locals uh, begin to resent Japanese control, mm -hmm. where with Japanese occupation comes Japanese educators. They're pushing children to learn Japanese in school, to right. um, celebrate their rights, to um, you know take on Japanese culture. And there's an assimilation process that goes on. It's similar to when the Russian Empire conquers Central Asia, and there's a Russification process going on. There's a, a similar thing happening with these occupied islands. So. With Americans who are, um, when Japan captures these islands, many Americans are taken to POW camps. Mm -hmm. For example, on Guam, there are a few soldiers who evaded capture for years, and they did so with the help and collaboration of natives there. And mm -hmm. many natives openly welcomed um, American soldiers, at least, well, I mean, Japan had an incredible propaganda campaign telling you they're going to murder you and mutilate you and torture you and all these different things. So many islanders were scared and committed suicide because of the stories they were told by what American soldiers would do to them. But when that didn't happen, then they were very happy to not be under Japanese control anymore. 
Absolutely. And don't get me wrong, the Japanese are being very smart about the propaganda that they're putting out. They're telling the Americans and the British, look, we're going to help you check communism, but at the same time, we don't like the naval treaties, the naval limitations that you're putting on us. And Japan's going to find that as much as they act like a Western power, they're not being respected by the Western powers. And so when you take that disappointment, that anger, and you mix it with the rise of nationalism and their new increased technology, if you if you zoom out a little bit, you can see that a clash of some kind mm-hmm. is coming. Right. I mean, and that's what instigate the Pearl Harbor attack right. initially, that it was decided that the Japanese high command war is essentially inevitable at some point. We can't really occupy all these islands without the United States getting involved. If we prosecute the war quickly take out their carriers, take out their fleet feet, then we can negotiate peace in favorable terms. And mm-hmm. Japan was, and still is in many ways, a resource poor Island without access to petroleum and other things. So they have to either have a robust trade relationship as they do now with other nations or control those resources. And they thought, well, with the United States up against us, they're not going to tolerate us openly conquering these um, different places. So if we can, attack them, knock out their large ships, oh, knock yes. out their industrial might or their naval might, then we can resettle peace, continue to have access to the resources we need and establish, basically become the Britain of the East, a mighty naval power um, with multiple colonies around it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But let me ask you, because this has always fascinated me. I came across a passage when I was getting ready for Pearl Harbor, and it has Yamamoto telling the cabinet or whoever his superior is, he goes, let me have something like Pearl Harbor, and I can run wild for 12 to 16 months. After that, the United States' industrial base is going to be ramped up, and they're going to they're gonna come after us. We're going we're gonna to feel it. Um, but... If we can take the fight to them, take the territory that we need that has the resources, perhaps bloody the collective American knows enough, maybe they'll come to the negotiating table and this will be over before it ever starts. So they do have a plan and it does start out well enough, but then it falls apart and many in Japan knew that it would fall apart. I mean, there was nothing unforeseen about this. In your eyes, is that courage? Is that desperation because of all the embargoes that the Americans and other countries have against them? Is Japan taking a leap of faith? Because either way, it's one hell of a gamble to be taking with an entire nation's destiny. Right. I think um, there's many different ways to do it, or there's many different ways to look at this, whether it's uh, bravery, foolishness, rashness, their entire plan of attacking the United States. And mm-hmm. Yamamoto had traveled to the U.S. He knew its industrial might. And I think anyone in Japanese high command would realize that a, a victory in America with a toe-to-toe slugfest would be impossible. However, um, fighting them and then engaging in a battle of attrition, hoping that the United States would lose the will to fight or simply not see the purpose of Mm. fighting a war halfway across the globe when, I mean, this is the 1940s, the, from the vantage point of 1940, before these incredible technological innovations come along, like the B-29, long range bombers, all these different things, battles with aircraft carriers, which wasn't the state of affairs before World War II. From the vantage point before the war, they think, well, they'll have to prosecute a war where the Pacific is massive. I mean, how are you going to travel so far? Good point. There's not really a vested, there's nothing that America is rationally gaining by beating us in battle. So uh, their will will, um, run out before ours will. And um, now that didn't happen. They probably didn't perceive just how 
viscerally angry Pearl Harbor affected so many people. And oh, yes. it seems like half the stories you hear of uh, soldiers and Marines in America is, well, Pearl Harbor happened and the next day I signed up. It Absolutely. just seems like it, um, not since, I don't know, 9-11. But I mean, really, I mean, if you think of other moments in history, such as the Vietnam War, um, America simply at some point, the war went on long enough that they lost the will. They didn't really see the purpose of continuing to going, or at least the public sentiment weakened enough that the war couldn't continue to be run. And mm -hmm. by the end of World War II, Americans were also running out of patience. And uh, planners and strategists realized, okay, we need to find a way to wrap this up and bring it to an end because we don't have a blank check forever. Um, servicemen are getting tired. Family members are getting angry that their husbands and sons and others are still overseas. It's been years. Um, and that was Japan's plan. Um, you know, even when they realized it was completely unwinnable, they thought, let's make it so miserable to keep fighting that they will give up. And oh. there were there was a lot of talk in the American military trust and the general staff that we ha and we have a limited time. We have to wrap this up. So from that vantage point, I mean, I think it could have been workable. And I mean, Vietnam was that strategy worked and that was a much less militarily sophisticated nation. Absolutely. You're right. Uh, Japan clearly uh, underestimated the mentality of the United States after Pearl Harbor, uh, whether it's right or wrong because of different values and different cultures. The Americans truly did see themselves as sucker punched. You know, you're supposed to declare war, you stand toe to toe, and then you go at each other, which might sound silly, but that was kind of the, the American mentality. You declare war and then you fight. And so the American people are screaming for revenge, not victory, but for revenge. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, but getting back to the larger story, Japan makes the decision. They attack Pearl Harbor and their plan is clear. They're going to hold out as long as they can, and hopefully the Americans are going to get tired of this. But we know with hindsight that not everything is going to go the empire's way, which begs the question, and this question's been debated for decades. Hell, it's been debated since the war came to an end. But I have to ask you, was the Battle of Midway the turning point or the war, or was it another event? Yeah, that's a thing that uh, my co-host and I, James, really, we just joke about because there's so many different turning points. Uh, yeah. I would say yes, just because the nature of the war changes. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the, uh, I don't know, the Doolittle Raid is the turning point. The Battle of the Coral Reef is the turning point. The Iwo Jima is the, yeah, it's just everything is a turning point. And I mean, yeah, everything it a battle turns things in a certain direction. Um, I would say it's as good as any, mm -hmm. uh, just because the overall strategy changes, the momentum of the war changes. And yeah, for the first six months after Pearl Harbor, Japan really does have a run of things. It's controlling something like a third of the globe and the co-prosperity sphere is huge at this point. Uh, so the idea is the Yamamoto, um, he wanted to lure American aircraft carriers in the Pacific so he could destroy them, basically finishing the job that was started at Pearl Harbor. And the goal right. was to sink America's aircraft carriers, which it didn't do. Uh, and uh, aircraft carriers are the linchpin of Pacific naval warfare. Absolutely, It's a way to project force hundreds of miles beyond what um, a, battlesh a battleship can only, you know, hit something a few dozen miles away. Um, Aircraft carriers can go hundreds of miles. Distance is king in the Pacific. Uh, so he also hoped to invade and capture Midway Islands with the Battle of Midway, which is an American naval and air base. So he sent four aircraft carriers uh, toward Midway. 
Uh, but America managed to break its code uh, to know of the upcoming Japanese attack. So uh. the U.S. sent three aircraft carriers and the supporting ships to lie in wait. Um, I won't uh, completely rehash uh, that battle. Sure. Um, I, if you want to hear more, I mean, there's, you know, again, I recommend James Early's podcast, Key Battles of American History, and there's a whole episode uh, that he doesn't, which is fantastic. Um, long story short, uh, um, America is able to um, attack them with dive bombers. Um, one pilot named Dick Best uh, hits two uh, carriers. I mean, that's pretty incredible right there. Oh, yes. Um, so after the battle, um, before Japan was on the offensive, um, now they were on the defensive for the rest of the war. Mm. Before Japan had the naval advantage of the Pacific, afterwards the U.S. would have the advantage. Uh, Japan lost four aircraft carriers, one heavy cruiser, uh, 248 aircraft were destroyed, 35 or over 3,000 sailors and pilots were killed. America only lost one aircraft carrier, one destroyer, only 150 aircraft and 300 pilots. And uh, what keeps happening is that Japan's, the most experienced and best pilots they have are at the beginning of the war. As the war goes on, their pilots are less and less and less experienced. They keep making errors in battle. Right. Uh, America only gets more and more experienced. Um, the new equipment is coming online at this point. Um, after about a year afterwards, um, the advantage becomes absolutely insurmountable. And uh, over time, what happens more and more is that Japan is fighting a war of attrition, and it gets nastier and uglier as they get closer to the home islands. So battle is more civil, if you could call it that, um, uh, in the beginning of the war. But as you get to closer with Okinawa, with Iwo Jima, uh, it becomes absolutely horrible. Um, the accounts of what Marines and American soldiers on those islands describe, it's oh, wow. other than World War I trenches, there's nothing that just sounds uglier than um, the warfare of uh, people, suicide attacks with soldiers rushing out. Just It, it, it just sounds, having to go cave by cave with flamethrowers, with Man. soldiers that will not quit, that will yeah. not surrender. Um, it Yeah, it just gets uglier and uglier as the battle goes on. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Yeah, no, I like the way that you put that, especially part in the middle, because after Midway, 
Even though the Japanese have plans for other offensive actions, they are forced to go on to the defensive. They can project a lot less power now because of the absence of those four carriers. It is a big deal. Uh, and I think it's fair to give Midway that title of, of you know, this is, this is turning a corner for the Americans and for the Allies in general. Certainly, if you combine it with the actions on Guadalcanal uh, during the months of 1942. So we're talking about the end of 1942. And if you look back, indeed, Yamamoto, those 12 to 16 months of running free, even that was an overestimation. So the Americans are able to turn it around. Uh, Midway was indeed a critical battle. And of course, you cannot forget about the contributions of the intelligence community. Right. I mean, having their, being able to break it, yes. their code, uh, figuring out when they were coming. And uh, I'm a little rusty. I think the way that they, um, the intelligence showed the general staff that the code had been broken was... Um, sending a false message that their water filtration system wasn't working on Midway Island. Oh, that's right. And, uh, they, then they received intelligence from Japan that they had to bring, uh, additional fresh water resources so that they could provide mm-hmm. it for their troops showing yeah. that, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, it was a very simple, but brilliant way to confirm what Roachford, the, uh, head guy there suspected. Um, so you mentioned the three carriers for the Americans and that's certainly true enough, but it, to my mind, it was almost like two and a half carriers because one of them was so badly damaged. Uh, but in the end, Admiral Nimitz takes a gamble and it pays off for him brilliantly which of course goes on to affect the rest of the Pacific War. Yeah, well, they uh, they patch up the Yorktown, the oh, carrier, in something um, like three days. Wow! Yeah, it's um, wow. Nimitz or somebody. He asked um, one of the officers, "How long would it take to fix?" He said, "Oh, about ninety days." And he said, "You have three. And I, I just oh. I wish I could see that sign where you would feel the officer the blood drain from his face and. Um, say, and just meekly say, yes, sir. Yeah, you've got your marching orders. Yes, I can only imagine that man turning around at that moment and going, how in the heck am I going to get all this done? It kind of reminds me of uh, Scotty from the Star Trek days. Is, I can't do it, Captain, <laughs> you know, uh, or whatever. He's, but uh, yeah, clearly they got it done, and clearly it was a success. I mean, it really shows that if you stripped away all OSHA standards and safety <laughs> standards and um, there was no, if there was no code whatsoever, how fast you could get things done. Right. Now, you would probably die in your workplace, so there's that to deal with. But yeah. um, if you have no restrictions or whatever and can just go to work, I mean, it really shows you how fast you can accelerate a timetable. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like we're talking about working in an office somewhere in the Midwest. I mean, this is a war zone, but still you have to have your standards, safety things for your pilots. So I get I get that. But we are talking about the Pacific here. Um, and you said this earlier with its vast distances. Uh, clearly, the United States and their allies are going to need a long-range bomber. Obviously, that's going to be needed in Europe as well because the Axis do control uh, mainland Europe, uh, which does bring us to the B-29 Super Fortress. Now, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but from what you were describing and and things I heard on your uh, podcast, between its evolution, its production, the number of them that we uh, ended up building, and then building more for the ones that were shot down, it absolutely blew me away when I realized that we spent more on the B-29 development and building them than we did on the Manhattan Project, which brought the entire war to an end. An absolutely astounding statistic. I mean, it really is amazing. The plane, it costs something like $3 billion, which you said was uh, more expensive than the Manhattan Project. And it was also called one of the fiascos of the war oh because God. of how buggy it was. Yeah. Um, so what about... No, sorry. Go ahead. 
I well, so I mean, for context, the like the real workhorse of um, in the early part of the war was the B seventeen bomber, right? Um, which that's my son's favorite plane. We went mm. to an air show and we got to get inside of it. Oh, cool. Man, those things are cramped. Um, <laughs> right? They're you know you you. <laughs> They're just, yeah, I mean, they're, so they had a crew of about 10. Mm-hmm. They're, they had different turrets where you could shoot uh, enemy planes. So that's why they're called a fortress. But the B-17 wasn't pressurized. Oh, so, wow. and those things are flying 30, sometimes nearly 40,000 feet. So imagine being five or 10,000 feet above Mount Everest. I'd rather not, thank you. Uh, I mean, they had oxygen masks in there, so you could, you know, not pass out. And they had these electric suits called bunny suits that you would plug in not to freeze to death. Right. Um, but yeah, just miserable. So, um, yeah. So the goal of the B 29 is to be able to go long distance, um, to be pressurized and to cover the hundreds or thousands of miles across the Pacific and be able to, uh, achieve what needed to be achieved in the Pacific that, um, there were needs and technological needs that didn't exist in the European theater. Yeah. And if I can add on to that, what I found to be amazing was how late the B 29 super fortress came into the war. Um, but I, then I found out even more incredibly that the army air force actually ordered 1,650 of these, even before the, the test pilot or whatever for the B 29 had its first flight. Why? Because it was late 1939. The army's looking around just like everybody else and they can, get anxious. They can see what Hitler's doing in Germany. They can get anxious about that. They can see what Asia is doing in China at this time, and they've been doing it for years. So the army takes a huge risk. They know there's plenty of bugs in this thing, but they place the order soon because it gets the process going. Because clearly there's a threat on the horizon, and the army doesn't want to be caught with his pants down. Yeah, I mean, for a military strategist, the thing, the B-29 was your dream. It could fly 3,700 miles without refueling. Right. Uh, I could go 350 miles an hour. Its altitude was so high that uh, Messerschmitts or Japanese zeros could barely reach it. And um, it just seemed, for an American planner, you think, hey, all we have to do is uh, conquer an island a couple thousand miles or a thousand miles away from the Japanese home islands, and the war is basically won. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, it doesn't work that way, uh, but because it was rushed to production, it had massive uh, mechanical problems in the beginning. There were um, it swallowed valves, it caught fire, uh, crankcases burned. Wow! Uh, gun siding blisters were blowing out high altitude, or they were frosting up so badly it was impossible to see through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, engines burned with such with such hot. Temper- or high temperatures, they'd peel off right off the wing in flight. Oil leaked from valves. Uh, Curtis LeMay, an Army Air Force general, said it had more bugs than a university's entomology department. <laughs> uh, in the beginning of the war, there was, uh, yeah, pretty clever guy. He didn't say much, but, you know, he had his lines here and there. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of LeMay. You should be. Good. Yeah. Uh, so... He was, um, I mean, in the beginning of the war, there were more pilots who um, died from mechanical defects Uh, than um, actually being shot out of the sky. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. That's heart-wrenching. I did look up uh, Curtis LeMay, and I found out that his nickname, he was called by his men, was Iron Ass. What kind of person do you have to be, or what kind of orders do you have to give to get a name like that? I'm guessing they called him Iron Ass behind his back. That's what I would have done. 
Uh, I also read that it was the mechanics on the front lines, the the forward areas that had to figure out all of these bugs or a lot of these bugs. And uh, that soon became their full-time job. But between the local commanders and the local mechanics, they got these in. They were very happy to have them, but they knew that there was going to be a lot of work to do. Uh, but just to give you an idea of how rushed, in some ways, the B-29 was... On February 18th, 1943, uh, Eddie Allen, who's the chief test pilot, and he's flying the uh, the number two XB-29. Like you were saying a minute ago, the engine catches on fire. The plane crashes into a meat packing plant. All 11 men on board the plane were killed. 18 people on the ground inside the building were killed. And so this is in February of 1943. But yet at the end of 1943, these B-29s are being pumped out, warts and all, and the local commanders are just dealing with them as best they can. But if they can get them fixed and up and running, it is certainly uh, a huge advantage to have these on your side. Right. at the um, When the first B-29s, when they fly off to India in 1944, just about every single plane had some kind of mechanical problem. Oh. Uh, Two planes were lost in Karachi. One just disappeared with its crew over the ocean. Nobody knew what happened to it. Right. Uh, so more American airmen were lost in B-29s due to mechanical failure than enemy fire. Staggering. And I, the plane had something like 55,000 parts. And so there's so many moving parts. There's so many things happening. It's new technology. Sure. Uh, it... I, I, I'm just, I mean, really looking into it, the, the bravery of air crews, it's, we always assume that um, the danger is, you know, a bunch of fighters come, a bunch of Japanese heroes coming around and you're shooting them all. But what if you're over the ocean, you know that you have between 500 and 1,000 miles of open ocean until you get to it, and you start to see smoke coming out of something um, up there at 30 or 40,000 feet. Um, what are you going to do? There's no, um, there's no place to land. Um, it's almost impossible to survive a water landing. If you get out, I mean, maybe you could get into a lifeboat, but where would you go? Who would spot you? Exactly. You could be in shark infested waters. It's just terrifying. Right. And the reason I wanted to bring that up was because one, the allies obviously wished they had the B-29 earlier than what they did. And two, they certainly would have liked it to have all the bugs worked out. But you have to give the Army Air Force credit for being smart, for placing the order when they did, because Germany is already years ahead of everyone else with their rearming. And when it comes to Britain, uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain, in the Munich agreement, he catches a lot of flack for that, and, he's, and of course he should. But it did give Britain a little bit more time to work on their uh, various planes and their plans for an air defense as well, because they knew the very first thing they were going to have to do was defend the skies around their islands. And again, it may not be the sexy side of war, but early development of a weapon can make a huge difference on the other end, near the end of that war. So the B-29 will end up delivering, no pun intended, on what its manufacturer claimed it could do. And I think it it was responsible for probably the most important event in the winning of the war in the Pacific, um, which wasn't the dropping of the atomic bombs, although I do think that's what really ties it up. Right. But what ultimately weakens Japan is the firebombing of Tokyo in March 1945. Ah, uh, yes. And Curtis LeMay architects this. Um, if he's received criticism uh, posthumously for his life, um, mm -hmm. uh, this is probably the big one right up there with uh, running for uh, as the vice presidential ticket for George Wallace. Um, wow. Which is another interesting story, which um, I think there's good reason to believe he did it not because he 
wanted to resegregate the South, but he just disliked uh, LBJ so much. He just wanted, or um, um, sorry, uh, not LBJ, but uh, he wa- he wanted Nixon to win the presidential uh, campaign and right. thought that he could um, basically ensure that as best as possible by splitting the vote. Mm. Um, so anyway, um, in February 1945, British and American bombers used incendiary bombs over Dresden, Germany to gut the town square. Right. And LeMay's entire approach to warfare was similar to William Tecumseh Sherman, that he wanted to end it as decisively and quickly as possible. Sure. With the point being that he would save the lives of Americans and as a byproduct, also the lives of Japanese, because a long drawn out war of attrition would simply mean more death. Um, even if you wanted to be a gentleman and only hit military targets, LeMay assumed that if we go as viciously and as hard as possible, then the war can end better, and in the grand calculus, it will actually be better for everyone um, on every side. Right. So the approach that he had, he remembered reading as a boy in National Geographic that most Japanese cities were constructed of wood and paper. Um, This was like 98% of the buildings in Tokyo's factory district were made of these materials. Wow. And so the point being that he thought, well, one way to end the war and to take out the factory production abilities of Tokyo was like Dresden, hit it with incendiaries. Right. So uh, in March, the what he does is um, have planes come in, not at 30,000 feet, but for planes to fly individually between five and 7,000 feet, mm-hmm. Um, just because it would, Japanese gunners and anti-aircraft guns would have to re- for the first day or two, they would be sighted for 30,000 feet. And if coming in a lower altitude, they'd oh, have to be resighted. Right. Um, that makes sense. So what he worked out was that, um, clusters would, uh, drop, uh, incendiaries that would explode about 2000 feet above the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each cluster of bombs would release about 40 um, bombs of napalm and phosphorus that would basically rain fire over the city. So um, the what it was like um, on the ground, I mean, it was absolutely hellish. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people died of asphyxiation because the incendiary sucked oxygen out of the ground or sucked oxygen completely out. Um Estimates put the number of people who died in Tokyo the first night of the bombings at about 100,000. Um, 16 square miles of the city, which is probably the most dense 16 square miles in the world at the time, were destroyed. About a million people were left homeless. And uh, the Air Force history of the war records that, and this is a quote I have, the physical destruction and loss of life at Tokyo exceeded that at Rome or that of any of the great conflagrations of the Western world. London of 1666, Moscow of 1812, Chicago of 1871, San Francisco of 1906. No other air attack of the war, either in Japan or Europe, was so destructive of life and property. Wow. Um, so probably more people died in the six-hour period of the first bombing than any other time in history. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so I think what this really did is it the Japanese high command realized it, it changed how they thought they could win the war by fighting a war of attrition. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was still a view in Japanese strategy that Americans were products of decadence and liberalism and individualism and right. just weren't tough, tough enough to fight a protracted war. Um, but the view changed that they thought the Japanese command realized there's no longer the ability to win the war with a hope of success. Right. Um, there was a hope that maybe people could just fight a guerrilla warfare campaign when Americans evaded the home Island, but 
it definitely took the wind out of their sails. Um, so um, horrible moment in the war, but I think similar to like a William Tecumseh Sherman, um, I many have argued, and I would agree with this, that ultimately LeMay saved lives by this tactic, both American and Japanese. And at the end of the day, LeMay simply had a job to do. And I think it is uh, important to remember that it's not fair, it's not right uh, to sit here in 2022 and ask why somebody was doing something in 1944, 1945. You literally have to be in that place to have gone through everything that they've gone through to see their point of view. So when it comes to LeMay, he had a job to do and his job was to win. His job was to make sure that the enemy couldn't produce any more uh, war material to help them fight. There were four main islands. You've got uh, productivity scattered around. So he's going to have to hit uh, all four islands to to stop the workers, to stop the uh, the work itself. That was his job, to end the war as fast as he possibly could and get everybody back home. Yeah, I say absolutely. And um, I mean, one of the big questions um, that I think still follows the uh, World War II in an argument is the dropping of the atomic bombs. Mm-hmm. And... Um, before I did this series, I mean, I was, um, I, I mean, no one should think that it was a great thing that happened, but I was sure. a little bit mixed on it, but I became, um, much, I think more, uh, supportive of the, that decision just based on what I read. And I mean, this is a contentious thing. So for example, a few months ago, uh, the author of the New York times 1619 project, Nicole Hannah Jones, she tweeted that, um, the bomb was dropped. Um, she said they dropped the bomb when they knew surrender was coming because they'd spent all this money developing it and to prove it was worth it. So basically right. saying, well, it was just sort of like the, the early appearance of the military industrial complex. And that's the only reason it was, uh, dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a book called, um, hell to pay about the America's wartime plans of the invasion of Japanese home islands. Right. And I think it's one of the greatest things, um, very thankful that didn't happen. Um, there's like few things as toe curling as looking into war plans for actually invading the Japanese home island. And um, wow, just the I mean, it would probably the order of death. Um, it probably would have been at least five hundred to a thousand or five hundred thousand to one million U.S. soldier deaths. Um, probably many more casualties beyond that. Um, in terms of Japanese that would have been killed, some of the more bellicose people in the high command were saying that, you know, we're willing to put all 100 million people's lives on the line. Um, but we don't know how many would have died, but it could have been something on the order of 20 million lives. There were men, women, and children being trained to engage in guerrilla warfare with soldiers. So it would be like Ramallah, Iraq, but the entire nation, uh, just horrifying to imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, So something on the order of 200,000 Japanese did die as a result of the atomic bomb dropping. Uh, This is um, what we've seen come out of uh, U.S. and Japanese archives. The, um, I mean, the traditional argument for dropping the atomic bomb um, that was given by Harry Truman is that Japan simply wouldn't surrender, um, but because it was dropped, Emperor Hirohito cited this new and most cruel bomb in a speech announcing the surrender that, um, because of this, this is what ultimately sealed the deal. Right. And then, um, then by about the 60s, there's a revisionist school that says Japan was already ready to surrender before the atomic bomb attack. Mm-hmm. And the reason that America dropped it anyway, as the revisionist argument goes, is that they wanted to intimidate the Soviet Union 
and sort of like fire the first volley of the Cold War. Right. And ultimately, the dropping was uh, unnecessary, and you know Japan would have surrendered anyway. Uh, they also contend that surrender could have happened without the bombings if the U.S. had compromised on its goal of unconditional surrender of Japan. Uh, but since then, I mean, I think with, with as more archives have opened up and um, we've seen how, my, I mean, Japan was still willing to fight this war of attrition, even at this late stage in the war. Yes. The argument for the bombing um, as a strategic choice is much stronger and, the amount of death that would have happened with an invasion of the home islands makes me think I don't, I don't celebrate it. I mean, atomic weapons are horrifying. I think it's one of the great successes of the 20th century that no atomic weapon has been used since then. I'm very happy for that, but oh, yes. in light of you have a bad choice or a worse choice to make. So I think it was the best thing that could have been done. Yeah. I'd read in a book about operation downfall, the, uh, the invasion of the four main islands. Um, I think it's important to remember that by this time in the war, the Americans have lost just over 400,000 people fighting. And in preparation for this invasion, a document was found and saved, and it showed that somebody was asking for about 100,000 body bags in anticipation of invading the home islands of Japan, or whatever Mm -hmm. the equivalent of body bags was back then. Um, So the mentality had to be something like, wait, 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 wait. We've lost 400,000 people since 1942, and we're about to go into this knowing we could easily match that number or at least get close to it. I mean, that that's insanity. I can see why the Americans back then were okay with dropping the bomb, and because it was their time, it was their decision to make. Um, the Americans had considered themselves sucker-punched at Pearl Harbor. They wanted revenge, and like you said, they wanted this war over with as soon as it could possi- possibly be over. And, and of course, you've got a, the government as well. Maybe they have to justify spending all that money. But like you said, in the end, it happened, and it probably did save American and Japanese lives. So basically what we're trying to say here is that the decision was made, the bomb was used. We should study this and learn from that how that decision was made and hopefully never repeat that situation mm-hmm. ever again. Absolutely. I mean, the if just in the to the precursor with the um, conquest of Okinawa... Uh, the Japanese troops are held out for a hundred days against overwhelmingly superior allied forces. So just taking that island was hard going cave by cave with flamethrowers in a very sophisticated tunnel network. Right. Uh, I mean, imagine what could be accomplished on the home islands with far higher numbers, ability for preparation, far more access to resources, to water and food, uh, yeah. yeah, if I could add on to that, I had read that the uh, the United States lost 14,000 men in taking Okinawa, and the Japanese lost 140,000 people, yet they still considered it a victory. Why? Because they made their enemy bleed, and it took almost three months before the island was lost. And again, that was the plan. Delay the enemy as long as you can, kill as many of them as you can, and perhaps, just maybe, you will force the Allies to the negotiating table. I mean, they, yeah, they were using psychological warfare, and that has worked in the past. So famously, uh, Vlad Dracul of Wallachia was um, led uh, a nation that was numerically far inferior to the Ottoman Empire at the times. Right. He, the Ottoman Empire was led by Mehmet the Conqueror, who had conquered Constantinople in 1453. Uh, overwhelmingly superior army. Uh, so Vlad Dracul used psychological warfare, and he would impale 
um, soldiers, and as the Ottoman army was marching to Wallachia, they would see thousands and thousands of Ottomans and others impaled on stakes. And as you keep marching, I mean, as a soldier, you become more and more terrified. You're, you lose the will to fight. No matter, it doesn't matter that you have 10 times as many soldiers, you have more cannons, you have everything. You think, if we lose, that's me. Yeah. On, I, that's me impaled. Yes. And it worked. Um, Wallachia wasn't conquered by Mehmet. So the Japanese, I mean, were executing a similar strategy where POWs were executed, um, they were beheaded, they, you didn't, any soldiers were just jittery GIs, um, Marines, because you go onto an island. You never know. You go into a cave, like someone's going to come out of a corner and um, try to stab you or spear you or anything. Right. And I mean, if anyone could do it at the world of the time of fight, a war of attrition, it would be Japan. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, they were race fanatics and that surrendering was worse than death. So yes, it would have been an awful bloody mess. Uh, fortunately, it did not happen. Uh, but of course, the alternative was horrific enough in itself. So Scott, again, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show, uh, for helping me cover the highlights of the Pacific War, just in case, you know, I pass away without finishing this labor of tortured love. Uh, again, I'm a big fan of your show, History Unplugged. Uh, is there any last thoughts you'd like to share with us about the Pacific Theater? Well, I like happy endings. And um, <laughs> I think one, there have been many failures and successes in the international order of the 20th century. But right. uh, the Marshall Plan, I think, is one of the great achievements in the 20th century. And one of the greatest things that the United States did, along with the moon landing and some other a notable achievement so that mm -hmm. the mistakes of World War I weren't repeated, that we have a robust peace with Japan, we have a robust peace with, peace with Germany. Um, I, I, I see why the, the enduring ongoing fascination with World War II continues because it's sort of like there's good guys and bad guys and the good guys won. Right. Um, and again, not to like make bad guys and, and uh, ethnic people, but sort of like the ideas of fascism, that fascism lost and democracy won. Mm -hmm. I'm always a little... People have an enduring fascination with World War II, I think, for that reason. And that's part of what makes me a little bit leery of getting into it, because it, the battles, of course, need to be understood deeply, because our we live in a post-World War II world, and it's what created our world order. But warfare is almost never as clear-cut as this. Um, the reasons for fighting are all much more ambiguous. Um, right. Warfare resembles something like Vietnam far more often than it would ever World War II. And I think anyone who comes out of warfare, and if you read accounts of veterans and others, that like, very few love the process itself. Many come away damaged uh, physically or psychologically. It's a hellish process. The reasons can be a bit convoluted. Um, so I guess I don't want all, everyone to always like think of war in terms of a World War II perspective. And your opponent is always Hitler. The reductio ad Hitlerium, I think, can um, absolutely dumb down our public discourse and you know calling someone Hitler because they have a different perspective on the tax code or how we implement healthcare is. Um, um, so World War II is very important, but I don't want that to all, to be our framework to um, engage the past. But um, 
It's um, I mean, it's not so much the the way the battle was fought was very important, but the way that the piece was won too, I think, is equally important. So um, I'm glad that there was a happy ending there. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. The events of World War II and how it ended has shaped the world that we live in today, so it needs to be studied. Uh, Mr. Rank, thank you very much for your time today, and I hope you continue staying warm thank where you. you currently are. Appreciate it, Ray, and keep up the good work. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.